Oh, there is just something about the name of Jesus. He makes the darkness tremble and he silences fear. Hey, one of the ways in which scripture teaches us that God does exactly that is when we connect in community. And before we get in the word today, I just wanna challenge you. The Rooted Semester is about to begin on September 13th. We have online rooted groups and we have on-site rooted groups. So if you're ready to come out and be with a small group of people, you want to sign up for that. If you'd rather stay at home and Zoom or use some other kind of platform to have an online rooted experience, let me encourage you to do that. All you have to do is go to newhopechurch.org forward slash rooted and sign up and let's get community going in the life of this church this fall. Hey, we are so glad you are with us today. You are going to be so blessed. Pastor Mike Bro is going to be teaching part two of our sermon series, Reality Binge. And he's going to be camping out on those two characters in the scripture, Jacob and Esau. I named one of my twin sons after Jacob. This is going to be a great word, and we are so blessed to have our teaching pastor today. So grab that Bible, grab the pen or your phone to take notes with, whatever the case may be, and let's just see how God is going to speak to us today. We're in a series that we're calling uh, Reality Binge, where we've been walking through some stories of, of the Bible that feels like, you know, one of those reality shows, those, those shows that make you sometimes say, really? They would, they would do that for 15 seconds of fame? Uh, on some levels, the Bible can actually feel like an unscripted reality show, but today is one of the most mind-boggling episodes you will ever see, because today we're taking a look at the Property Brothers. Now this story has nothing to do with uh, uh, tall, handsome twin brothers or HGTV remodeling or flipping houses. It does involve twins and it does involve property. And it really is one of these, what the heck was he thinking stories. Now before we jump into it, let me just give you some framework because the story hinges on a little thing called appetites. We are all wired up with lots of appetites, right? I mean, there's an appetite for food. Uh, There's an appetite for sex. There's an appetite for, uh, uh, I know know there's gotta be a few more. I'm just kidding. No, God designed us in such a way that we have an appetite to be loved. We have an appetite to be accepted, an appetite to be treasured, an appetite to be respected. We have an appetite for responsibility. We have an appetite to compete. We have an appetite to win. All those are healthy appetites. Let me show you a few things about appetites that Andy Stanley a few years ago helped me get a handle on before we walk through our episode of Property Brothers. The first thing is this, appetites were created by God and distorted by sin. Appetites were created by God but distorted by sin. We were all made in the image of God. And like I said, he wired us up with all these healthy desires. The desire to be loved is a good thing. The desire to achieve is a good thing. Sexual desire is a good thing. To create is a good thing. To win is a good thing. To want more responsibility, that's a good thing. God created our appetites. But sin distorted them. Now when we walk with God and we do life his way, all of those desires can be expressed in a very healthy way. 
But when you and I take life into our own hands and we live like there is no God, then those desires become totally self-centered and almost insatiable. Because if you notice the second thing about appetites, they only know one word, and that word is more. Our appetites really only have one word in their vocabulary, and that word is more. Think about it. If we find love, we want what? More. If we get a little respect, we want more. If we win, we want to win again. No matter how much you achieve, how much you accumulate, how much praise you receive, you always want more. I mean, I can go to a restaurant. Remember those places? And I can polish off all of my, like, enormous burger and half a Debbie's meal, and I can say, oh, man, I am so stuffed. I may never eat again. You ever say that? And then the server comes by with that dessert tray. He says, can I interest anybody in dessert? And I say, hmm, let me see that. Perhaps I could manage a little more, right? We always think there's room for just a little more. And we live as if there is something out there that will finally make us go, ah, that's it. That's enough. But it does not exist. And have you experienced that appetites always scream right now, never later? Your appetites and minds scream, come on, come on, you need to move on this now. You need to grab this now, feel this now, taste this now, drink this now, watch this now. You need to experience this now. And our response to that, our ability or inability to manage those appetites, to say to ourselves, you know, I'm not going to let appetites rule my life, I think is the ballgame. One last thing about appetites, instant gratification is a terrible life coach. You've heard this term, right? Life coach. I mean, there are people who make it their career to coach people through life. They help them navigate through major career decisions, college decisions, finances, family stuff. They mentor the gifts and wise and godly wisdom for the journey. Now, if you are in the process of looking for someone like that, a mentor, if you're considering hiring like a life coach, let me give you a heads up. When instant gratification applies for the job, don't bring it in for a second interview. It has a terrible resume. It has ruined more lives, led more people astray than any other thing I know. More families have been wrecked because somebody could not control their appetite for more. They let their thirst for instant gratification lead their life. And I'm telling you, gang, when appetites sit in the driver's seat, then instant gratification is your life coach, you don't stand a chance. Now, there's a poignant illustration of all this in Genesis chapter 25, like I said, it's about two brothers. They were twins, not identical. But the older brother, by a few minutes, was a guy named Esau. And Esau became his dad's favorite. I mean, Esau was man's man, big, rugged guy, you know, shaving in the fourth grade. You know that guy dressed in camouflage, loved to hunt and fish, had an outdoor face, had biceps the size of my thighs, drove a huge jacked up truck with a rifle rack in the back. You get the idea. That's Esau. The younger brother is a guy named Jacob. He was smart, cunning, articulate, intellectually savvy, and he was his mom's favorite. He had an indoor face, spent most of his time in the kitchen trying out creative recipes. That's Jacob. They were like polar opposites as brothers. Now, the story revolves around this thing known as the birthright. Now, it's, it's not a concept that you and I are super familiar with in our culture, but back in Middle Eastern culture, it was a really big deal. You see, the oldest son in the family was given by his father this thing called the birthright, which wasn't based on performance or anything else other than just being the firstborn son in the family, even if it was just by a minute or so. 
there was a huge financial upside to having the birthright because when dad passed away and the will was read, the firstborn son would receive about three times as much as any of the rest of the kids. He would get two thirds and the rest would be split. The leftovers would be split. Again, not by the merit of anything he had done, just simply by the birth order. Another thing that came along with the birthright was the authority you were given over the rest of the family. And the whole family knew it, like you were the man. You, you were in charge. You settled all family disputes. Whatever you say goes because you are the one with the birthright. And there was one other thing. In ancient Middle Eastern culture, there was this belief that if you had the birthright, then you, more than everybody else in your family, had the blessing of God. So you can see the birthright was a huge deal. So let's just jump into the story. It's found in Genesis chapter 25. You can get a Bible, you can get your app open, you can follow along on the screen, here we go. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I am famished. So here's Esau, comes in from hunting, says, man, that smells good, little brother. I'm hungry. Give me a bowl of that stew. Now, I didn't grow up with a brother, so I don't completely understand this dynamic like some of you do. Uh, but Debbie and I, we have, we, had, uh, we have two sons, and Debbie had two brothers, so I understand a little bit uh, of the way it happened. When Derek and Drew were little kids, uh, the, the older brother, Derek, seemed like the, always the one that was holding up the younger brother. In fact, when you, in fact, when you think about it, rarely does the older brother need anything from the younger brother. And I'm guessing the same dynamic from sisters as well. Now, my boys, Derek and Drew, they love each other. They really are best friends. They have a great relationship. And we never had any serious sibling rivalry going on in our home. But as they were growing up, you could kind of see this dynamic. You, you might have this dynamic in your home where the older doesn't really need anything from the younger, but the younger's always wanting stuff from the older you know what I'm talking about? The little brother or sister is kind of like a pest to the older one. Mom, they've been in my room again. Mom, they wore my sweatshirt. Mom, they wore my jeans. Mom, my car is gone. Did they borrow my car without asking? They are such a pest. Why can't we just like give them away? The little brother is always wanting stuff from the older. But rarely does the older brother need anything from the younger. But when he does, when he does, the smart little brother hits pause and says, whoa, wait a minute. You want something from me? You never need anything from me, and now that you do, I have the power, and it's gonna cost you. If you want this from me, then I'm gonna need that from you. And he starts negotiating. Let me drive your car. No, let me wear your jacket. No, let me play your PS4. No, give me your iPhone. It goes down the list until the older brother finally caves in. You've probably seen that dynamic in your own home. So little brother Jacob, knowing the impulsive nature of his big brother Esau and fully aware of the power of appetites, seizes this moment and says, okay, here's the deal. This steaming delicious bowl of red stew can all be yours if... The price is right. And he offers the most ridiculous trade in all of history. Check it out, verse 31. First, Jacob says, sell me, trade me your birthright. What? Not can I drive your truck or trade bedrooms for a month. I want your birthright. Okay, I mean, come on. 
Who in the world would give up everything they had simply because they were hungry in the moment? Who would trade their entire future for something as temporary as a bowl of red stew? Come on, who would throw away their marriage? Who would throw away the respect of their children? Who would throw away their reputation? Who would throw away their career? Who would throw away their influence in the community? Who would throw away their ministry? Who would throw away their legacy for something as insignificant and temporary as a bowl of stew? You would? If it's the right bowl of stew. I would if it's the right bowl of stew. People like us do that all the time. Because gang, unrestrained appetites are powerful and they're always screaming, right now, never later. And instant gratification is your life coach. It'll lead you away from making the right decision every time. And gang, none of us are exempt from standing in the very same situation, making the same kind of stupid trade for something that will take everything we have. Look at Esau's response. I mean, this is unbelievable to me, but look at Esau, Esau's response. Okay, look, I'm about to die. What good is the birthright to me? You talk about living in the impulse of the moment. He gets all dramatic. He says, I'm about to die. Now we read that and we think, dude, come on. You walked into the kitchen. You have shoulders the side of bowling balls. You're not about to die. Your stomach might be growling, but you're not about to die. Come on, man, you're exaggerating. No, no, look, I'm about to die. What good, see where he's going with this? What good is the birthright to me? What? What good is the birthright? Well, for starters, you get three times as much money as your brother. You get control of the whole family, and you get the blessing of God. Yeah, 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 I know all that stuff, but I'm talking about right now. I mean, if I drop dead from hunger right now, what good is the birthright to me? I mean, come on. This is ridiculous, right? But it happens to all of us. In fact, researchers have studied and written about how when something that our appetites crave, when it shows up in front of us, something chemically changes in our brain. And there's this chemical reaction that makes that already strong desire now even stronger. It magnifies the desire to the point where it makes the thing we crave seem like the end-all answer for what's missing in our life. This chemical gets released in our brain that makes that thing almost irresistible and our self starts to lie to us. Oh, if you could only get this, if you could only have that, if you could only have her or hook up with him, oh, come on, this is it. This is the more you've been craving. You gotta get it and get it now. That's what happens to Esau. In the moment, that's all he could see. All he could think about, all he could smell and taste and crave was what his appetites were telling him he had to have in the moment. Verse 33, so Jacob said, well, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. So Esau trades his birthright for a bowl of red stew. Again, worst trade of all time. In fact, there's a little comment at the end of verse 30 that says, that's why Esau was called Edom, which means red. Think about that, how embarrassing is that? Because he traded his birthright for a bowl of red stew, people started calling him red. 
What's up, Red? I mean, how would you like to have a nickname that reminded you of your stupid decision for the rest of your life? I was thinking how helpful it would be if all of us would just stop and play that video all the way out before we make the wrong decision. When I was listening to Andy teach, teach on this, and he talked about how helpful it would have been if somebody could have dropped in the moment and told Esau what his future held. If somebody could have shown up and said, like, Esau, do you, do you remember how you heard your dad, Isaac, talking about how his dad and your granddad, Abraham, had been given this promise from God that he was gonna like make him and his family into this great nation. You remember that? And from that nation was gonna come this huge, huge blessing for the whole world. Esau, you need to know something, man. You're gonna have 12 sons and they're gonna have a bunch of kids and eventually you're gonna become that nation that God was talking about. That nation is gonna be taken into slavery in Egypt. And they're gonna be enslaved for 400 years. They're gonna cry out to God and God is gonna hear their cries and God is gonna raise up a deliverer. This guy's name is Moses. And hang with me here because I know you're hungry, dude. But when God shows up and introduces himself to Moses, he tells him, I am the great I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. And listen, man, if you take that stew, all that changes. You think you want what your little brother has now? You take that stew and God will introduce himself to Moses as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your little brother. And listen, Esau, hang with me here. About 2,000 years later, the Messiah, the one God promised your granddad would come through his lineage to, to, to bless the whole world, that deliverer, is gonna to come to this world and they're gonna call him Jesus, which means he will save his people. And the most amazing event that will ever happen in history will happen as he delivers all the people of the whole world for all time from their sins. And while he's on earth, he's gonna gather some people around him. One of those guys, a guy named Matthew, he's gonna write down the story of Jesus. It's gonna be contained within this best-selling book called the Bible. And the way his book is gonna start is, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and Abraham was a father of Isaac, and Isaac was a father of Esau. And look, man, I know your stomach is growling, but let me ask you, you wanna give all that up? You wanna throw away your future? You wanna throw away your legacy for a lousy bowl of stew? But there was nobody there in the moment to like fast forward the video of his life there was no one there to remind him that God really wanted to do something great through his life. There was no one there saying, come on, man, don't do this. This is an incredibly bad trade. Appetites are strong, and you eat this stew, you'll only want more. Come on, Esau, don't listen to your appetite screaming now. Think about later. Think about your family. Think about your future. Think about your legacy. This will not satisfy. But look how it ends, verse 34. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. He ate and drank. They were gone. They got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Here's the deal. This tension will never go away. You and I will always have to manage this battle with our appetites. I see this all the time with pornography. Again, that chemical gets released in the brain and that desire becomes almost insatiable and everything else blurs and distorted thinking takes over and they find themselves trading in the light of a real relationship for the darkness of some temporary fantasy and fix. 
end up trading selfless love for self-gratification, and they stop seeing people as somebody of great worth who are made in the image of God and trade that in for a flickering image on a computer screen or an airbrushed photo in a magazine, trading love and freedom for the sanity of a lousy bowl of stew. The only hope for us is to restrain our appetites of what God wants to do with our life, to kind of reframe them and, and see the bigger picture, to really know ahead of time what you want your life to be, what you want your life to look like, and then play the video all the way out of what it could be and what it should be so that when your appetites shout, more and now, come on, more and now, more and now, you can say, no, you know what? I'm not gonna let you control my life. I'm not gonna let you make decisions for me. I'm sticking with God's plan. I've got a picture of what I want my life to look like, and if I go with you, it's gonna mess all that up. So I'm not, I'm not gonna cave in the instant gratification. I got one life coach. And that's the Holy Spirit of God, and he's in me, and I'm listening to him. Do you see why it's so important to surrender to the loving leadership and authority of God, to let his wisdom lead our lives instead of our selfish appetites? Because in those moments, when our appetites are screaming at us, we need some strength beyond ourself. We need some power to shut those appetites up. We need somebody bigger, better, wiser, stronger to guide us a different direction. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians 5.16, he said, so I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. Then you won't be jerked around by your appetites. When you invite him to come into your life in the moment, in that moment, he'll remind you. He'll be there to remind you. Come on, play the scene all the way out. He will prompt you to draw close to him. He will show you a way of escape. He will prompt you to lean into a good friend for help and counsel. He will prompt you to surround yourself with people that can speak truth into your life and help you with all the distorted thinking that might be going on in your head. He'll bring up truth from scripture that you've learned on the weekend or maybe in personal Bible study that will counteract all the lies that your brain is telling you in the moment. He will help you reframe your appetites so they don't lead you away from becoming God's best version of you. So they don't lead you away from leaving the kind of legacy we all want to leave. So I want to give you an assignment this week. I want you to take a a piece of paper and a pen or do it on your laptop or your iPad or whatever whatever you do this stuff. Write down at the top of the page 10 years from now and take some time to do it. Ask yourself, what do I want my life to look like 10 years from now? And ask ask God to help you as you start to write. And just start writing down what comes to your mind. Like what kind of person would you like to be 10 years from now? What would you want to see God do in your friendships, in your marriage, in your kids, in your grandkids? What do you want to see God do in your neighborhood, in your community, in your school, in your students, your team through you? What do you want to see God do in your career, in your business, with your employees and their families? How could you see God maybe using you in this world, in ministry, serving other people? And just start writing it down. 10 years from now, this is what I want to look like. I wrote those things down many years ago in the back of a notebook. I'm I'm thinking probably 35 years ago now. And I still check them regularly to remind me, yeah, this is what I want my life to look like. And this is the picture that I'm hanging on my heart because this is who I want to be. This is the type of husband I want God to mold me into. This is the type of dad I want to become. This is the type of friend I want to be. This is what I want my legacy to be. I did that a long, long time ago, 
And you know what? It certainly hadn't been perfect. But for the most part, just having that picture and daily surrender has kept me on track. And I'm gonna do this assignment again this week along with you because I just wanna do it again for the next season of my life. You just have to ask God to help you to find what a great life, what a better story really looks like and then hang that picture on the wall of your heart and then go after that. And then you daily surrender to his leadership and you ask God's spirit to help you restrain those appetites because if you don't, you'll find yourself in the same spot as Esau. and You'll trade your future for a bowl of stew. So, man, can I just pry a little bit and ask you because I love you? What's, what's your bowl of stew? I mean, what's that thing right now that's being held out to you that honestly, you're finding it pretty hard to resist? What is it that's so hard for you to say no to right now? Let me ask you ask it this way. What, what are you trying to talk yourself into? What kind of rationalizations are you asking your mind to come up with so you can make a feeble attempt to explain the reason why you're walking this way? What is it right now that you know? You know it's a really bad decision, but you're about to do it anyway. Whatever it is, it's your bowl of stew. And it looks good. It smells great. And it promises something it can never deliver. Now, I don't know what it is for you right now, but I do know this, that what's true of Esau is true of you. You have no idea what God wants to accomplish through your life. You have no idea what God wants to accomplish through your kids and through your grandkids. You have no idea how God wants to use you in this community, on your job, in your school, in your ministry, but God knows. In fact, he says, I, I know the plans I have for you. Give you hope in the future. Come on, live a better story. Let me coach you. There's so much I wanna do in and through your life. So whatever you do, please, please don't trade that amazing future for a lousy bowl of stew. Father, we all are faced with choices and those appetites you place within us, God, we, we let them get self-centered and they get out of control and we let them lead us down some really stupid paths. And they end up broken and hurting and relationships along the way that we've ruined and just because our appetites were telling us to go a certain direction. And God, I, I pray that this little piece of reality that we saw today would stop us all in our tracks. Go, I never wanna get my thinking to get that distorted. The trade eternal life, the trade a legacy, the trade impact, the trade influence, for something as temporary as, as a bowl of stew. God, I pray that we would identify what it is that's trying to lead us away, that we would lean into your Holy Spirit for the strength to walk your direction. Thank you, God, for lessons like this that uh, seem so real to us in the moment because we all struggle with it. And I pray that you just stamp it in our hearts today. I pray also, God, that you would help us this week as we try to come up with a, what do you want our life to look like? And just kind of draw a picture with words of what we want it to look like and how you might lead us. And then hang that picture on our heart so we could go after that instead of impulsive decisions in the moment. And I pray all this in the name of Jesus who hung our picture on his heart and went after that without distraction. Amen.